The History with Jackson podcast. Hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. I'd just like to ask you before we jump into some details on today's episode that if you enjoy the History of Jackson podcast, you enjoy some of the content that we put out, do please consider heading to History of Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts or the Buy Me A Coffee profile link in the description below to support, but only if you want to. Now, without further ado, today we are speaking to Dr. Karen Carr, all about her book, Shifting Currents, A World History of Swimming. This book is amazing. It's changed my perception on swimming. It's changed my perception on the history of swimming, the origins, the reasons, attitudes, and needs. So I know you're going to enjoy this episode. It's not just an episode for people who enjoy swimming. So I'll leave you with Dr. Karen Carr. So hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. Today, we're talking to author and historian Dr. Karen Carr all about her book, Shifting Currents, A World History of Swimming. This was a really interesting read. I found that it changed my perception on swimming uh, and changed my my view of swimming across history. Uh, so I'm really excited to talk about this. How are you doing, Karen? Um, great. Thank you. So, I'm really excited to be here. I'm really excited to have you on and to talk about your book with you. Uh, and the first question I want to ask you, as I ask all of the guests here in, in History of Jackson, what inspired you to write this book? I was going to write just a really short article about swimming, you know, a page. And then I um, I went to look for things to read in order to prepare for writing that article. And I, there was like nothing. There was... There was nothing that had been written recently by someone who was a historian as opposed to a um, a swimmer, right? There were, there were swimmers who wrote books about swimming, but not, not historians in the last hundred years or so. And so I started to look into it a little more, and then I realized, then I got really interested in the ways that the history of swimming can help us decenter Europe in our view of history to see that it's not all about Europe and that Europeans weren't always the best at everything that they were interested in what other people were doing and uh, that other people were were better at things uh, and certainly at swimming uh, than Europeans. There's a couple of points I really like there firstly that you know it's Taylor's oldest time you can't find the book that you need so therefore you write it uh, and I really like that you wanted to decentralize that narrative away from Europe. I think it's quite important to bring those other nations and those other regions into the story. Now, I want to ask, where where does the history of swimming begin then? Uh, well, swimming, I think the book starts out by saying swimming is the first activity of the first living creatures on Earth, right? As soon as there's cells floating in the ocean, they're swimming. But... Uh, swimming is also probably one of the first activities of the earliest humans um, because uh, one of the things I really realized writing the book was that how much swimming is a, uh, a way to get food, right? That, that water and being around the water is uh, a really stable source of food for early humans. You can eat mussels and clams. You can eat... Um, seaweed you can catch fish just standing in the water with your bare hands or with a stick or something uh, you can make nets and so early humans were probably in the water a good deal 
and uh, probably knew how to swim. We can't really prove it until the later later in the Stone Age, until almost the end of the Stone Age, uh, when we have them when they start drawing pictures of themselves swimming. Uh, but um, but there's probably a ton of swimming, you know, in the hundred thousand years before we have any knowledge of it. I, I really liked how you start started your book with that bit of, of prehistory uh, with the floating cells. And so I thought it gave a really nice, nice view of, of history, really, because it's never, you know, history is not just where we begin recording it. It's, it's before that as well. I wanted to to look. You know, how did the needs? We looked at it with food and uh, food and, and wanting to survive. But how did the needs for and attitudes to sw- towards swimming differ across you know different people, countries, and regions? And how did these needs and attitudes emerge? Because each region and each people and each country are, are very different across the world. Across most of the world, people swim like all the time. There, it's uh, they live in fairly warm places in uh, throughout Africa and um, the southern parts of Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, and a large part of South Asia, in Australia, in South America. It's pretty much always warm enough to go swimming, and it always has been. And people swim. I think it's very hard for us to realize how much people swim or people swam before colonialism. Um, there's, it's a regular social activity for people of all ages. So uh, it's like if you were always saying to your friends, hey, I'll see you down at the pool after, you know, after work, or I'll, you know, hey, you know, let's, you know, skip work today and go swimming or, uh or it's even part of their work, right? Because they're catching fish and they're pulling seaweed and stuff. So a lot of their work too centers on swimming. Um, they're they're swimming several times a day, right? They expect to see their grandparents there, and they're they're bring down their little kids. People uh, with disabilities are swimming. Like everybody is swimming, and and uh, and then there's a huge contrast between that and uh, this one small, relatively small part of the world that covers Europe and Northern Asia. So what's now the USSR, uh, Mongolia, uh, where I think what happened, it's hard to tell because it's so long ago, was that in the Ice Age, it got too cold to go swimming. And probably there was also not a lot of water because... Um, a lot of the water was was frozen into ice. And so even in the summer, it didn't melt. And so there were fewer ponds and smaller rivers and, and you know, fewer safe places to go swimming. Uh, and they forgot how to swim. Those people, I, I call it a northern swimming hole, right? So it's, it's a hole in the practice of swimming in the north. And these northern non-swimmers, when the Ice Age ended... They started to, you know, travel around a little bit and they saw that other people knew how to swim and they were just shocked. They were really upset by, you know, this whole social life that was a big thing for other people was not something they knew anything about. They were used to maybe sitting around the campfire. I'll, I'll see you around the campfire after work. <laughs> you know, they, they were not going swimming and they made up 
a bunch of different reasons why this might be. They, you know, by the time this is happening, they don't even remember the ice age anymore. They have no idea why they're not swimming, right? It's been generations. Nobody's written anything down. They don't know that it used to be the ice age. And uh, so they make up a lot of different reasons why they don't swim. Uh, and these are reasons which when I figured them out, I was like, these are still re reasons that we carry within ourselves today as the descendants of those northern non-swimmers. The first one is danger. We say, th they said, and we still say, uh, that swimming is super dangerous. And the reason they don't swim, other people, maybe Egyptians, Southeast Asians, are reckless and uh you know, taking their lives in their hands, but but northern non-swimmers uh, stay safe and stay out of the water. And it's true even today that we emphasize when we're teaching children to swim, it's all about water safety. It's all about not drowning. We never say to the kids, you should learn to swim. It'll be a lot of fun. Oh, you have to learn to swim in order to hang out with your friends. You know, don't you want to learn to swim? Uh, no, we say you have to learn to swim because otherwise you might drown if you fell out of a boat, like in an emergency. And then the second reason they came up with was that it was too sexy. It was immodest. People went into the pool, they took off their, their, in, you know, into the lake or the river, they took off their clothes. Oh my God. Like there they are taking off their clothes, getting into the water. And of course, everybody did swim naked all over the world, but these northerners, I suppose they're probably more used to wearing clothes than people in hotter places, but also they just made up this reason why they weren't swimming. Oh, it's because we're super modest and we like to keep our clothes on. And, you know, and so, uh, and we still have that too. We still have this idea that you can't go swimming unless you have a swimsuit body, right? Which like, why? Why, can, you know, people play tennis without having a tennis body, but swimming for some, we have this association with, with sex. Uh, and that's a lot of what was behind the segregated pools of the, of the early 20th century. Also this idea that you couldn't swim with, uh, that if you swam in the same water as someone, that it was tantamount to being their girlfriend. It's really interesting to see those, you know, societal and moral views playing out in you know the early history of, of swimming but you know moving into the medieval period you know this period that uh europeans love to to focus on in their historical research you know, how does you know you mentioned you've mentioned in your book a a rise in swimming culture now we've already spoken about the northern europeans forgetting how to swim but can we unpack this changing attitude towards swimming in the medieval period well they 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 learn europeans Northern non-swimmers in general, not just Europeans, but also in China, uh, learned to swim in antiquity, in the Iron Age, so about 700 BC. Uh, that's when we first start to get pictures of swimming, Odysseus swimming. Plato t talks about how uh, you can tell if someone is really ignorant because they don't know how to read or how to swim. Um, so there's this idea that People should know how to swim, but really only the upper classes. That's, it's, swimming is going to be something that shows that you've traveled, that you're very hip, that you know how people do things in Egypt, um, and you're going to swim like those very cool, sophisticated Egyptians. Uh, but 
for a long time, there's been this idea among people who write about swimming that people forgot how to swim with the fall of Rome. Because, I don't know, the fall of Rome makes a good deadline for things, right? It's a breaking point, And they're like, and then after the fall of Rome, I don't know, things were terrible and everybody stopped swimming. There's no reason to think that. There's plenty of evidence that people are swimming in the early Middle Ages. Charlemagne is supposed to have been a really good swimmer. Um, there, there are plenty of references to people swimming from the early Middle Ages. But later on, in the late Middle Ages, so starting in the 1200s, we really see people not swimming anymore. And not only do they not swim, but the few people who are swimming have forgotten how to do a crawl stroke, which is what most people had used all over the world. Uh, and they've started to swim breaststroke instead. And uh, there seem to be two main reasons maybe three, three, three possible reasons. Uh, and one is that the weather actually got a little colder again the, with the little ice age. Uh, and another is that the most powerful man in Europe, the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, drowned. I mean, he didn't drown because of anything to do with not knowing how to swim. He was, by all accounts, actually a really good swimmer, but he, and he drowned because he tried to cross a river in full armor on his horse and the horse like slipped. So he couldn't swim in full armor. That's understandable, but people were very upset that he had drowned and maybe that affected their thoughts. But I think the main reason why people gave up swimming in the late middle ages was that it was unfashionable. The people who were super cool and hip in the late middle ages were not the Egyptians anymore, but the Mongols. The Mongols had this giant empire that spread all across Asia, and boy, did they not swim. They were, they were from that northern non-swimming group of people, right, from Mongolia, and they absolutely did not swim. There's a great uh, page in the, uh, I think it's the Let's Go guidebook to um, Mongolia, where they're like, this head of the page says swimming in Mongolia, and then they've just left the page blank. Like people don't swim. So uh, the best illustration of how that affected Europeans that I uh, can give you is in the Très Richard du Duc de Berry, which is an illustrated manuscript from the 1400s. In it, it's in the page for August, right? It's a calendar. And in the page for August, in the background, there's a pond and some peasants who have been harvesting are going swimming in it and they're doing the breaststroke. But in the foreground are a bunch of very richly dressed noble people, men and women on horses, and they have falcons on their wrists. They're going hawking. And that's a super Mongol thing to do, right? That's, that's something that's very uh, Mongolian. And you can see the contrast he's drawing between these crude old fashioned peasants who don't know what's what and these super hip Mongol influenced aristocrats who know that the really hip thing to do is not to swim anymore, but to uh, have your falcon and go catch, go hunting. It's it's really interesting seeing how, you know, what people think is, you know, cool and hip as you say is influencing what they want to do in their their social lives, what they want to do with their time, um, and it's it's interesting to see that play out across that period. So, 
another another period that you know I've seen throughout your book and throughout your your writing in the book. There, swimming starts the the attitudes towards swimming again begin to change during colonialism and and the slave trade. How did this happen? Right. I mean, we've seen people swimming because the Egyptians, because Africans who swim are very sophisticated and cool, right? And then, and yet we see in the late 1400s and 1500s that uh, European slave traders who are going to Africa, to West Africa, are justifying their enslavement of the people they meet there on the grounds that they can swim. They say they they must not be fully human because they can swim, like dogs swim, horses swim, subhuman enslaved Africans swim, uh, you know, which is absolutely not the way that they had been thinking about it a thousand years earlier. And, and you know, comes as kind of a shock. But I think that they what they really want is to enslave people. And they're also like the earlier, like their ancestors at the end of the Ice Age, they're surprised that these people can swim because in Europe, people have stopped swimming and they've forgotten about swimming. And so when they get to Africa and they see people swimming, they're like, wow, that is really weird. And they just take it as a reason for enslaving people, that it's okay to enslave people because they can swim. And not only that, it becomes a feature. Uh, we see it advertised when people are having auctions, when slave traders are having auctions of Africans in the uh, Americas, uh, that they say, oh, this person's a really good swimmer, or this person is from an area that's known for its very good swimmers, because it's useful, right? They, they have people pearl diving, they have people... Uh, diving into rivers and and dredging them so that boats will be able to get through and uh, it's considered a feature of uh, of black people of of West Africans that they're really good swimmers but not something that white people would do you know white people aren't barbarians that would go swimming uh, so there's there's absolutely and then that becomes associated with um, with witchcraft. And you start to see in the 1600s in Europe, a big wave of floating witches, right? Of tossing witches into the water, of tossing, tossing women into the water in an attempt to prove that they're witches. Uh, and the idea is that there's this connection between being foreign, being uncivilized, being women, being witches, right? It's all kind of the same thing. And so if you put them together, uh, you'll you'll find out that they're that they're really witches. It's it's really interesting how, again, mainly white men within this this sphere are using a skill that they no longer have as a method to dehumanize and undermine others, which is very very interesting. Um, Absolutely, in and in keeping with the general sort of the unity of the non-swimming people all across Northern Eurasia, this whole idea of floating witches seems to come from Ukraine. Uh, so it's it's something which comes from further east and you can see it moving across Europe first in, in Poland and then in Germany. And then they try to do it in France and Italy, but the, the church clamps down and is like, no way, that is, that is a stupid idea. We're just not going to do that. 
and then it it jumps over France and comes to uh, England and Scotland, and eventually to uh, even to the the British colonies on the east coast of the United States. You know, so so from swimming being this device of suspicion and, and trying to undermine others, how does it then start to become popular again in, in Europe and uh, America? Right. So in the by the, the late 1700s, just as the idea of floating witches is beginning to reach the American colonies uh, in the mid 1700s, at the same time, there's like this counter idea uh, where a fair number of, of adventurous, sophisticated Europeans, people like Lord Byron, right, are are starting to be like, wow, that swimming looks like kind of fun. And like, you know, as we travel around the world, we see a lot of people are swimming and they seem to be having a good time. And like, maybe I'll try it out. And so all the really cool edgy people like Byron and Thoreau and Louisa May Alcott, people like that are um, learning to swim. Benjamin Franklin is a really good swimmer, right? There's this kind of I'm hip, so I'm going to swim. Uh, and then, of course, other people also start to be want to be like Byron and, and like Benjamin Franklin. And they're like, we're going to learn to swim, too. They don't really learn to swim, most of them. They're like, I would like to go for a weekend at the beach. But mostly I'm going to sit on the sand, you know, and have a beer. I'm not going to go in the water, which is still true for most Europeans and Americans who who are like, I'm going swimming. They don't mean that they're going to get in the water. They don't mean they certainly don't mean they're going to go out where they can't stand. And in fact, at many beaches, you're not even allowed to go out where you can't stand. Right. For safety reasons. Oh, yeah. And and that's that same view going going across again. Yeah. Right. Uh, whereas, for example, um, in the uh, early 1500s, there's an account uh, written by some Portuguese uh, explorers in Brazil, where the local people are just uh, floating around, you know, way out of their depth, pretty far out- offshore. And the, the Portuguese row over there to save them. And they laugh. The Brazilians are like, we don't need saving. We could stay here all day. We're just hanging out. <laughs> and the Portuguese are like, what, what, what? So, I mean, it's absolutely not, da- you know, I mean, uh, there's danger in swimming, but there's danger in lots of other things that we don't focus on the danger as much, right? When people go to ride their bicycle or go skiing like we know that there's a danger but we don't spend a lot of time talking about that danger and going well you can't ski down any like really difficult slopes because it would be too dangerous or you know you can't go really fast on your bike because that would be too dangerous we we accept the danger in a way that we don't with swimming i think it's quite interesting that you know you're accepting that and different people are not being able to see that other cultures do that but i think i think one thing that we've not really touched on too much here is we've 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 only touched on it very slightly with the transition from you know front crawl to to breaststroke you know the breaking into the modern era more styles of swimming starts but start to emerge and start to be used how how does this happen when we've from you know only really known about possibly front crawl or, or breaststroke 
it's all kind of related because what the way Europeans eventually justify swimming is they say all those other people are doing what they call natural swimming, like animals, right? Like dogs and horses. But Europeans are going to do scientific swimming. It's the 19th century, you know, and everything's about science. And and Europeans are going to swim scientifically. And so they're going to have swimming competitions like the Olympics, which gets started at the end of the 19th century. Uh, and they're going to have, uh, they're going to be racing each other. So it's going to be very important to swim as fast as possible. We're going to have scientific analysis of people's swim strokes using the new science of photography, right? It's all going to be, and it's okay to push all these other people out of the water and take all the good beaches and lakes and things for white people because we're serious swimmers who are going to be competing, not people who are just hanging around having a good time, right? They're, those those other people are not serious swimmers. So it's okay to marginalize them, push them out of the water. And all the water is going to be dominated by serious swimmers. And then of course, once there's competitions, people are looking for ways to have more different races. And so they're like, well, what if we had a competition in crawl and one in breaststroke and also one in butterfly and also one in backstroke uh, and medleys? And, you know, so it's part of this whole sort of swim. We are scientific swimmers. People have to learn to swim with lessons and coaches. They have to be on swim teams. Like we're not going to, when Americans and Europeans do swim now, they hardly ever I mean, it just doesn't happen that adults are like, let's all go down to the water and, you know, hang out. Maybe we'll, I don't know, play Marco Polo or, or uh, you know, when we do go into the water, it's almost always in the context of swimming laps for exercise, trying to get beat our time on, on laps, get better at a sort of competitive swimming Uh or in the context of giving children lessons that will ultimately lead to the same kind of com- of competitive swimming. Uh, we don't think about swimming for fun because we have this idea that, that Europeans are scientific swimmers and not social swimmers. It's really interesting how that, that, that represents another attitude change towards swimming. But you're also touching upon there is the... You know, politics of of power and exclusion. You know, can you can you tell us about how how swimming becomes entangled in those in those policies in the twentieth century? Right here, we're going back to remember all those people in the nineteenth century who are trying to justify their swimming and and be cool by swimming. Uh, they're all being educated in the Greek and Roman classics. Right. So one of the things that they really absorb very strongly from reading Caesar, from reading Plato, is the idea that swimming is an upper class activity only for people in the upper class. Uh, so that's why Plato associates people who can read and people who can swim. It's only people who are really upper class. And Caesar does the same thing. He's always talking about how much better a swimmer he is than the troops are because, you know, he's really upper class. And you just have that all over ancient literature. And so these, you know, British schoolboys reading all of that become very attached to the idea that swimming is an upper class thing to do, not for the unwashed masses and certainly not for people of color. 
and they start to, you know, marginalize uh, everybody who isn't up an upper class, you know, elite person. Uh, they they start having different hours for even public pools where you have the third class pool and the, the first class pool. They cost different amounts of money. There there are segregated beaches, the upper beach that's for good people, and the lower beach that's all covered with garbage and uh, it smells bad and nobody wants to go there. There's this big push to make swimming something that is really for elites only. And we absolutely have that with us still today. So, I mean, it's, it, it appears most markedly as an issue of skin color, of not wanting white people to swim with black people. And there's certainly that in it, uh, particularly in the idea that swimming is inherently very sexual. And so you don't want uh, if you don't want white women to be dating black men, you don't want them swimming with black men either. Uh, but it goes beyond that to also excluding people from the lower classes and wanting to say, you know, vacations and beach vacations and swimming pools and people start building their own swimming pools in their yards that can be private. Uh, there's, instead of it being a social thing where everybody's going to mix together, it becomes something that you're going to do to show that you're upper class. And, and I find that all the time when people ask me, want to talk to me about the book. One of the first things they want to assure me of is that they're personally a very good swimmer because it's a class marker. Well, I'm, I'm certainly not a very good swimmer. Uh, so. <laughs> well, here, here, I'm totally wrong. <laughs> My, I can't float, so that's that's something for everyone. Uh, wow. So, yeah. <laughs> and did, did is there some reason why you grew up unable to swim? I just didn't like the water, didn't trust it. So that's <laughs> so I do know how to swim, but it's you know it's very interesting how those those policies are pushed in those ways. But then you do still get those those fears of you know I I can't trust I don't trust the water I can swim but I don't enjoy it because of that. So it's very mm -hmm. interesting in those in, in that sense. Very, that's a very classic reaction of yeah. uh, Europeans to to the water, right? I can swim, but I don't enjoy it. That's yeah. uh, that's a sort of the normal northern non-swimmers attitude. Yeah, it's probably inherited um, memory, possibly. But I had a final fun question for you now, Karen. Um, so your book is about swimming, but do you have a favorite thing about swimming? I like swimming, but I've never been, you know, a professional swimmer, a competitive swimmer, anything like that, right? My swimming is very social. And what I really like is swimming with my kids. You know, when my kids were little, we would go swimming a lot. And it's, you really realize when you have kids of different ages, to what extent swimming is a, a fun activity that people can do uh, at different ages and not, you know, and, and all have a good time together. And I, I just, I wish that if there's going to be an outcome of my book, I hope it pushes people in that direction to think of swimming as something fun, as a social activity and not necessarily competitive. That's, that's a really nice answer to bring your family into that and, and, and want, wanting people to get that, that message from your book as well. I really like that. So thank you. Now, 
obviously, we've we've been talking about your book. People are going to want to know where they can grab a copy of your book and find you online, Karen. So where can people grab a copy and, and find you? So Shifting Currents, A World History of Swimming is on Amazon, of course, and online also at Powell's Books. And uh, I think Waterstones carries it. And uh, or you can get it directly from the Reaction Books website. Uh, and you can find more of my writing at my link tree. Search for uh, Karen Ava Carr. And, uh, and there's a link tree with a lot of links to uh, what I've been doing lately. Or find me on Twitter or Blue Sky by searching my name. And I do certainly recommend reading your book and interacting with you online because I've learned so much about swimming from your book. So thank you very much for, for coming on and, and, and giving, you, giving us your time. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the History of Jackson podcast where we had Karen Carr discussing her brand new book, Shifting Currents, A World History of Swimming. Now, I think you can agree that was a really insightful discussion about different parts of swimming that I think not very many of us have even thought about yet alone knew about so I hope you enjoyed that now if you enjoy listening to the content that we create here at History of Jackson such as this episode or some of the previous ones like our Gloucester Festival special series please do consider supporting us at History of Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts or through the Buy Me A Coffee profile in the description below but Next week, we will be coming back at you with another awesome, insightful, educational episode. And I can't wait to share that with you all.